0: Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. I'm Amanda, and I left academia about one year ago to become a scientific editor for grants and manuscripts and an editorial manager for our science website.
1: I'm Ian, and I've recently left academia to move into a science communication, editing, and publishing career.
2: And I'm Dr. PMS. I've left academia about two years ago to work as a biotech salesperson, and I'm still in recovery. We're in
0: various phases of transitioning out of academia, and we'll share insights, advice, and problems we encounter at each stage.
2: Hi, and welcome back to the Recovering Academic Podcast. I'm here with Ian and Amanda, as always, and today we are having a guest. We are receiving the visit of Osa, aka Shout Dreams, on Twitter, and... Uh, Oza, she has a PhD in microbiology and she's currently working as a project coordinator in the pediatric cancer field. Hello, Oza. Hello. Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Thank you. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
3: Um, sure i uh, came originally from sweden where i did my graduate studies and then i moved over to the u.s to do a postdoc since i got an opportunity to do a postdoc for a couple of years with money so who wouldn't want to try and do that when you're on the tenure <laughs> <your> track <laughs> um and then after a few years of post i i went into that little thinking period and going what do I want with my life do I want this and then I, I left the postdoc and started working as a quality control scientist in pharma and then I went back to sort of academia life as a project coordinator after that so that that's pretty much the story hmm. yeah
2: and it seems as we were saying it's it seems very straightforward like I did this I did this I did this. Tell me now <laughs> the in betweens you know, like the the transition when did you realize when how it was that you because it seems like oh, suddenly I realized that I didn't want it to be
3: there, yeah, no, of course it's not really like that. It sounds really nice in hindsight and it seems very clear and very planned and and you know <laughs> <laughs> i I really liked my postdoc i it was um Uh, infectious diseases and we were looking at some different microorganisms and how to treat them and everything else and and I thought it was fun but then after about two two and a half years of doing that and working every day doing weekend work and and having a lot of um, work and not really any hobbies at all I started to question if that was really what I wanted to do the rest of my life and then it's also you know you you go through certain things in your personal life on the side that you never really talk about but you work and then you might have a breakup or or going through something like that so you're all alone in another country and you're banking on that you're going to be a professor and then you start questioning is that really what i want am i working this hard for if, if that's really worth it so I've started thinking and then I decided that I wanted some more opportunities and I thought if I go and leave the tenure track and, and become something else maybe I won't have to work as much because I know that there's always more to do in science and I was quite happy doing a lot of the work so I was kinda of banking on a job outside of academia um, maybe giving me an opportunity not to work and have a more work-life balance um, not sure that I'm there yet, but you know, it's a work in progress.
1: And uh, I mean, so you mentioned quality control and pharma as your first thing beyond uh-huh. the postdoc. Is that right? Yes. And so yes. I, I mean, I, I know they're slightly related, like infectious diseases and pharma. But was it a big stretch to go from one to the other, or was it, you know, like oh, quality control of things to treat infectious diseases?
3: No I think I think the easier way for me to to look at quality control is partly it's it's a little bit dangerous when you look at pharma what you want to do because quality control is mainly routine testing or you device tests but as a microbiologist two of the most important tests that most pharma need is called sterility so if you do any type of injectious, um, Uh, medicine you have to prove that it's sterile so that's usually controlled by a microbiologist so when you have a PhD in microbiology you're very it's a good thing for pharma to say oh we have a microbiologist who's actually doing the Mm tests. and then the other thing that you do is you have environmental monitoring so every room that produces something in pharma has to have air quality control you measure how much microbes are in there and all of that is again microbiology so it's not a, a bad thing to say oh i'm a microbiologist i want to do quality control um but you have to be aware that it's a lot of routine things and a lot of routine testing so it's not um you know it's not new stuff exciting as
2: doing research (laughs) and and finding out new things it's more like testing it's Uh and setting
3: setting up new new procedures and making sops or standard operating procedures for people and machines, and you have to test the machines, and you have to prove and validate everything. So it's very meticulous, and you have to be detail-oriented, but it's based in science to start with. So I guess that's yeah. the difference.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I mean, it seems like getting a PhD in microbiology actually sets you up for a lot of different things like that, because like a lot of biosafety officers are also PhDs in microbiology because they just have the background for that and disposing of... You know, hazardous things. Also, um, like unlike other PhDs, it seems like microbiology just sets you up well for a, a pretty broad range of careers.
3: It does, and then you have the food industry as well. Yeah, so there's yep. a lot of yeah. microbiology people that you go into. You know, you can test quality on food products. All the pre all the pre made food that we buy has been approved by microbiologists somewhere along the line. You can be a, a lower level microbiologist, but again. If you have the PhD and you want to leave the bench and you want to move into some sort of regulation, then that's always an option.
1: Right. You could also so. go brew beer. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I just... like
3: that. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: that's what I need to do for my alternative career.
2: Mm-hmm. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Quality con- I-, I would love to be in the quality control of the beer, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> It's a different thing. So, anyway. Yes, I would totally do that. Yeah, so it seems that in your case, it was uh, easier once you decided that you wanted to leave academia. Um, It was easier to...
3: Well, so I, the, the other step. option would be to say also that I applied for about 40 jobs before I got my job. So <laughs> um, it, it's easy. I'm sure that, you know, everything is relative. But, but most most of the things when you apply for pharma, what I noticed when they interviewed me, for a couple of these jobs anyway, was, um, you know, you have been a, a independent researcher and a scientist. How are you going to be able to follow these procedures? Because you can never deviate from the written protocols. You do exactly what told in the protocol so mm-hmm. they are a little scared when you have done you know when you've done independent research for three four years or even before that as a post a PhD um, so you had to kind of convince people that you were able to follow rules um, <laughs> it did help that during my grad studies we worked with a pharma company so I had a little bit of background to say that I've always worked with SOPs but mm-hmm. and how was it For you,
2: did you take it easy to follow the rules and not deviate from protocol?
3: Um, I'm a rules person. Um, I I think it's funny because I've always been seen in my friend circle as a very black and white person. You know, certain things are wrong and certain things are right. And then I started working at the pharma and the people in quality assurance, which are the... They're the people who control the people in quality control. They decided early on that I was a grayscale person. And, oh. and I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, everything is very clear. And they're like, you're really borderline here. And I was like, no, no, I, it's really quite simple. And they're like, no, no, it's it's really not. Because you when you you think you might be a black and white person, but then you stand there and you look at your tests and you say, is this test okay? CV cannot be higher than 5% and you have 52 is that five? Five point two? It's not. So you have to kind of scrap the whole test then. So then all of a sudden you become a great person. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about referential, right? Right. Mm-hmm. It like is. And how
1: you know, and what's the margin of error on that test? And uh, you yes, know, like exactly. Things like that, right? Mm-hmm.
3: So that's like, when you start questioning, and that's when they start looking at you, going, "Don't complicate this now." Yeah. We have like, three. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, you. Yeah. I mean you bring up a good point of like you know like it's, it's I guess sort of the perception outside of academia and like go going to like a more standard operating procedure type field is like you're going from something that's seen as creative and independent to something that's more structured and rote and I guess maybe that's part of like a struggle that a lot of PhDs might have into mm-hmm. going to something like that even though like really in science at least like I mean there is a creative part to it, but like when you're doing your experiment, like you don't wiggle, like you know what I mean? You, you no. can't. No.
3: <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. And you need to repeat them and then when you do right. your bioreplicate, you're supposed to do exactly the same. So I mean, you you do that. It's just to a different level when you're in pharma and it's regulated.
1: Right, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, you're talking about 5 versus 5.2, because like when you're like, I'm a very black and white person, I'm like, yeah, this seems like something that I would just be, like, I could fall into, and then you're like, 5 versus 5.2, and I'm like, yeah, it's not
3: really a difference. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, and, and then you have to scrap it, and you have to redo it every, all over, right. and it's like, well, how different is it really from 4.8? But, yeah, yeah it is different. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you get into those things that are so close, like, that are just, I, I mean, they become judgment calls almost at that point, right? No matter what, Like, in that gray zone, just, you know, it's like, okay, you know what, basically, I mean, I suppose, like, in the quality control world, like, the interpretation of that has to be, like, no, that failed, take it back, and get it down to, like, confidently whatever side you're supposed to be on for that, right? Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that is the point. So once you're up there and even hovering around those values, you shouldn't be there. But it, it's right. initially very hard to remember those things because you're like, well, but they're almost the same. Yeah, so. that, was, that
0: was my thought. So I was like, that's yeah. almost the same. And then you're like, yeah, no, they, they would say you're a very great person. I was like, oh, I guess I guess I would be too. <laughs>
2: Yeah, especially if you're tr- if you're working with drugs, with reg- all those regulations, if it goes a little above, then you don't want that. Yeah,
1: right. So No, that's but, a big I risk mean, for, for, yeah, for cause the Yeah, because you have a pipeline that has to produce a very specific product consistently and routinely, and like you have to work that out.
3: Yeah. Um So that was that was part of what happened afterwards. After a few years there, I ended up um, doing the stability coordination part on that. So every every drug company keeps stability on their own products to prove that they can you know, the use use by the certain date mm-hmm. it's been tested. Mm-hmm. So in order to prove that it can be used for up to five years, you have to test initially at certain time points. So you need a person who is responsible for making sure that those tests happen at the right time. So we, we needed a person to do that. So I ended up doing that, which was really fun. Um, and kind of being, you know, you, you write out all the tests for five years out for a couple of different products, and then you decide when you're going to thaw cells in order to test them or when you're doing all the other tests. So,
1: for like, yeah, for like the bioassay essentially. Like, pretty much yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some
3: bio oh, cool. some Some's pH. You need to see if the pH has changed if you've frozen it down for three years. You do some PCR's and see if the titer are okay. Um, different things like that. So every every time point has a different test. Pretty much.
1: Oh, it does. Oh, cool. Okay. I was gonna say like, do they do things like. Um... Like, I mean, the more of an example, like I mean, the famous like the Body Farm, where they test like different forensic conditions <laughs>
3: with dead bodies. Like you do that with the with the
1: pills, like putting them in high temperatures and freezing, and like just leave one out on the shelf. In the sunlight for 10 years. We did
3: that for some of the drugs, depending on okay. if, you, if they're going to different countries, right? You need to prove if they can, if they're stable in room temperature, for example, for a <laughs> year. You have to prove that they're stable for a year. Same time, if they're in the cold room or 4 degrees or 37, and sometimes you want to prove that they're not stable, so you can you can put them in 37 degrees, and then after two weeks, you can see that everything is degraded. So you can plainly say you have to keep it cold otherwise nothing works. Right.
1: Or conversely like hey, here's a good way to get rid of this.
2: Yes.
3: Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Or break it down I guess like not yeah. But
2: yeah, okay. Yeah, no. that seems inc- I mean, that seems I, cool. I would yeah. like to, to, to have all like this little sper- it's got a little experiments in the end because then you're testing and you don't really know what's going to happen. So it's it's more like an oriented way of.
1: Right. And I mean, really, whenever you're doing that, like, you're, you know, supporting the validity of science that came before. Like, every time that test yields that result, or like, you know, every time it works the way it's supposed to, like, it's like, oh, yeah, this works the way it's supposed to. And like, I mean, I think we do undervalue those kinds of results in science, like the replicability. Mm hmm of Mm -hmm. a lot a lot of times when like no that's absolutely essential like you know what i mean like the fact that pcr works every time like that validates you know thermotolerant dna polymerase like. yeah
3: no I mean it is it is pretty fun and especially in the end, if you've done it for five years in a row and you compile all of the reports into one thing and you kind of have a final thing so you have you make your graphs with five years worth of data and all those different experiments so you can you can feel like a scientist again <laughs> that was kind of fun
2: so it seems that um your day like the your daily routine—it's pretty much similar to the one that you had as a postdoc when you were in academia. Oh, at the at the at the pharma? No,
3: no, yes. not really. No, because it was all teamwork in pharma. You can't do anything alone. So you you kind of always have to have two people and two, two people's signatures. As a postdoc, I was pretty alone. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> I don't know if you guys had the same thing, but I. I did my own experiments and i didn't have a tech who was working for me or anything like that anything i needed done i did and then we took turns in the lab to make reagents and buffers for people but um but that was the extent otherwise it was pretty it was pretty much solo work whereas in an industry that was much more you you kind of talked about what was all the other people doing that day what kind of tests were we running together Mm -hmm. um which tests were supposed to fall into each other like if I did the first experiment and then the second test was based on the first test so um, you couldn't really do as much independent work Mm -hmm. That must also cut down on weekend work yes so I didn't work weekends and I think the other part I was going to mention was that I liked it but it was probably a little (laughs) sad so we didn't have a possibility of VPN in so the the, the, the place I worked at didn't have any type of outside connection so if you needed to work on your computer you had to be in the house so there was all secret right? so you had mm-hmm. to be inside so you could work overtime at night but if you came in on the weekend you had to really come in on the weekend in my present job now I get a computer and I can work from home and I just do remote desktop in so even if I may be able to work more now because I'm I can work from home I don't have to go in so there was a little bit different there.
1: Yeah, because like you've been through a second transition, like, you know, yes. you see yeah. pharma for a while, now you're um, a project coordinator. So what was that transition like?
3: Um, that was pretty nice, actually, because I, I like the fact that I could, I could take my skills from a postdoc with the bench work and the actual science knowledge and go into the pharma and then... There, I got the opportunity to learn a little more about coordination and working with people and kind of learn much more interpersonal skills and not leadership per se, but but those kind of buzzwords that you always read about. And God knows pharma has a lot of buzzwords around (laughs) them. So you learned a lot of that. And then being able to go back more into nonprofit and, and work as a coordinator with people and trying to help them and other postdocs and other grad students. Um, and also scientists from this position has been really interesting.
2: So was this a little bit like a promotion?
3: The project coordinator, the, the present job I have, yeah. Yes. It was a little bit up because going into pharma was a little bit down. Um, since you're 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 just a scientist or whatever, how to say it? It's not. Um, a lot of people didn't want that job. Um, that I got because they were say a lot of my my fellow postdocs that I talked to if if, you know when you describe what kind of work they were like oh that's so beneath you I'm gonna be a director when I go into pharma and I was like okay yeah but I'm I want I got a job so (laughs) quite happy with my my quality scientist job Um, so I think that was that was a little bit of the humbling part after looking for a job as a postdoc and then going back to project coordinator Um, that I have now was a little bit of a promotion because then they kind of saw the value that I had done, that I had worked in other places and then I could bring some other expertise in. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And the reason that I ask you that as well is just that now I just remember that blog post that you wrote (laughs) a, a little bit ago and about being promoted and like this... Um, that you want to be recognized you want to have your work recognized and you want to be promoted and have a better pay and it seems that in the academic world this is not I mean there was a discrepancy of how this is viewed in academia or how is it view outside academia so uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about this.
3: Okay well, I, I think my my point would be that and that that comes back to a little bit of where I felt lost when I last, uh, left academia and I think you've, you get, you have talked about it in some podcasts before about metrics or how do I, what have I really accomplished in my new job because you're so used to thinking papers or abstracts or conference talks or some metrics and then you end up in another place and and you don't really I mean I did count my assays that i did the first year because i thought that that was valuable so as a quality control (laughs) scientist it's like well i've done 157 assays and then i was like does that really make me more happy it's like not really it it made me a little sad that i just did a lot of assays and and kind of went through them um but yeah from from the promotion point of view i think i think that's part of it though that you have to think about what is the value you bring or what's the worth So why are you working? What's the whole point of it? Um, And and for a promotion and getting valued in pharma, they usually give you maybe more money. Um, It's not... And they have a more thought-out career path most of the time. Whereas in academia, I think a lot of people, you you know, you get a staff scientist job and then you stay as a staff scientist because that's the top level. I don't know where you are if that's the case, Mm -hmm. but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was the same at my institution or former institution. Yeah. So, I think that makes it that makes all the other stuff more um, competitive, maybe like you know if you if you can't ever get a promotion and you you get very rare salary increases, the papers become much more important, even if you're not on the tenure track, I feel anyway, or some sort,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, and I guess my was. Always- I mean, another thing that you get trained with within academia, I think in part is, you know, the thing that's valuable about you is your ideas. And like, it's not, it's not necessarily all up to you, like to define what the value of those ideas are. Like, you know, it's like, you know, you, there's the sense that like, well, my ideas live or die by the field and how they feel about them, right? Uh-huh. It's not, you know, like, yeah, objectively, this measure is good or bad. And so like, I think in academia, like, a lot of scientists may have a harder time Defining their value for themselves Like saying, oh yeah, I'm just You know, I have value because XYZ, I do this thing, I do that thing Like, it's interesting and You know, but like, there's a sense of like Oh, but I can't just say that myself Like, I can't say that I have value Just because I think that Like, that's not <laughs> valid <laughs> Whereas in like, the pharma world it's like, well, In the business world, in the private sector Like, it's like, no, 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 you're supposed to Like Sort of have a sense of what your value is and what you're bringing to the table, and um, just be able to assert that almost.
3: Oh yeah, no, that you have to kind of assert it all the time. I think that's yeah. that's the that's the complete opposite, which is hard when you come in from from the academia world to find that you know your PhD might not be worth as much because you actually have to come up with. Why am I here? Not just, oh I have a PhD, so I'm I'm good and they go like, okay, so what does that really mean? Say, well it means I can I can detect bacteria. I, I can <laughs> I can type them. And but you kind of and, and it's it's I laugh at it now, but it's really a, a big it was a big hurdle. Those first six months, there were times when that wasn't necessarily super easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't yeah, lie, I that know, was hard. I mean, as well as, like, I mean another <laughs>
1: thing is just like, you know, a lot of value is like I mean, I call it, like, low error rate, but, like, just, you know, most academics coming to anything, like, I mean, we tend to be perfectionist about a lot of things and just very, like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know what I mean? Like, we make sure to get it right the first time as much as possible. And, like, we're careful about, like, ducks in a row when it comes to, like, the technical stuff, even if we're not serious about, like, you know, ourselves necessarily. It's like, oh, no, 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 this is the work. It's serious. Take it seriously. We do that really well, um, I think.
3: I think that was one of the things that I didn't expect, but I'm sure it, since you have all moved out too, maybe you can pitch in on that. But I realized when I started my, my quality stuff, control job that I had stopped having hobbies when I was a postdoc because I was just working yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yep. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
3: So then I was all of a sudden going like, so what did, What do other people do after 5.30? <laughs> <Right>. It's like, <laughs> wow, they actually do things? And, and right. it was horrible to remember that I did a lot of things. I had a lot of hobbies when I was a grad student even, or right before grad student. But then for like six years, there was no hobbies. It was, I mean, my work was my hobby, but it doesn't really count in the end, right? Right. Or, like, a
1: hobby is an extension of your work. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm a science blogger, too, on the side. And so, like, that, I mean, literally just grew out of me doing science, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm only, like, a couple weeks into being, you know, beyond, really having a job beyond academia. And so it's, I'm still trying to work out, like, what to do sort of with my weekends and time. (laughs) um, Still writing, of course, but, like, you know, I have to figure out, I'm still figuring out, like, how to develop a social life and trying not to fill it all with work which is hard yeah
3: mm-hmm.
1: um and like figuring i recommend
3: out. nature nature was really wonderful for me you could walk yeah. like take walks for two hours and i'm going this is fantastic i don't have to go <laughs> into lab on saturday i can i can go yeah
1: no and i've done that it
3: sounds silly but it was things run, right. <laughs> right? yeah yeah, yeah i'm a runner
1: right. or trying to be like injuries sort of hindered that quite a bit lately but yeah I do go I do try to get outside and do that stuff so like and always have like that's been an important thing but like even that as a postdoc sort of it felt more like not running for me but like it's more running in service of keeping myself healthy enough to be a scientist still right okay. do you know what I mean like it's it all feeds back into the work somehow right and like even in like you know it's like oh well you take time away like I mean the thing now like As creative scientists and creative people, it's like, oh, well, you take time away to come up with your best ideas because they just hit you when you're not really at the bench and not at work. And so really that downtime is actually work because, you know. Oh, it
2: depends. It depends. It, it, It may be or it may not be. But, yeah, I agree. I, I run almost, I exercise almost every day. And it's not because I want to lose weight or because I want to be healthy or whatever. It's more because I need that time to, like, get out of the house <laughs> and just vent. <laughs> and and I'm addicted to the endorphins and the, the feeling that, mm-hmm. it, that yeah. it takes. But this also started more after I left academia as well. I think that it was to... I think that it's together. One, that um, I, I work more at home, so as a social extroverted person, it gets a point that I need to do something else, <laughs> but also to the point that I now I'm not um, a postdoc anymore, and usually I can, when it's 5, 5.30, I can just close my computer, shut it mm-hmm. down, and then I'm done with that. So. <laughs> Then you you end up, you end up not to be. That being said, you end, sometimes you still work during the weekends. Sometimes you still work uh, late hours if you have to. But it's different from academia. That is that you it's you're expected. Expected, <laughs> yeah. You're expected to be working and writing and and reading all the time. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, I've spent the past year or so kind of playing around with different hobbies and stuff to try to figure out what else I do with, like, what do I do after the kids go to bed? Like, I have a couple of hours, like, and I don't have to work?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of nice to just, I mean, like, I still sort of try to do creative things that I'm bad at, but, like, just because, like, it's fun for me to, like, I don't know generate like i mean like i have some weird like random data sets i've gathered from various things in life and just like you know what i wonder if i can teach myself some data analytics stuff just with these random data sets because it's fun
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know I, and it's sort of like you know and for me like i sort of still need the excuse that it's functional somehow but like it is all just playing around and creative and like i find it fun like and like i'm not going to get anything out of this really other than just it's like you know what? It's fun to play around with things like that to me. So yeah,
2: but this is still a hobby. It's a nerdy hobby. It is a hobby.
1: Yeah, admit it. <laughs> I'll be the first one to admit that.
2: Yeah. yeah, some people I don't know watch Netflix. Some people start
1: oh, I watch Programming
2: in R and mm-hmm. 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 that's nothing wrong with that, Ian. Yeah. No, I know. Right? Yeah.
1: You know, no, look. I mean, I watch my nerdy TV shows, so it's not like <laughs> I watch my nerdy stories.
2: I <laughs> listen to your to nerdy, to nerdy podcast.
1: <laughs> That's right. And I do this podcast. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're all home. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Um. You know, like, I mean, you sound like, I mean, it doesn't sound like you're unhappy in academia, but like, do you feel like you're more happy professionally now that you've been out of academia for a while and you're, uh, as a, you know, in, I guess in a more private, like non, I guess like yeah, private sector type, you know, project coordinator role. Like are you happier professionally than you were in academia?
3: I think I am. I mean, I would I would say everything blends in for me a little bit like work-wise and life in general when you look at yourself like am I happier? Am of I happier course. now than I was seven years, nine years ago? Yes, I am. Uh, does the job have a lot to do with it? Uh-huh, it does. I, mm-hmm. I think I think it's important. For me, it was important to find... Um, like, I was very hung up on my experiments and if the experiment... You spend three months doing an experiment and then you get it wrong or it doesn't work out the way you do and then that kind of ruins a lot as like emotionally draining Mm -hmm. and then you and for me i took it a lot like oh i'm a failure that that, never mind that the experiment might have been a failure but i'm a failure for setting this up or it didn't work and everything else and and now Mm -hmm. i don't really have that emotional thing because what i do now is a lot um i work with a lot of people so that's been a, a new thing to learn you know how to Interacts with a lot of people and getting people motivated to do things and and work together as a team and all those things. Uh, but I also have a lot of analytics that I do on on my on my own. Like you were saying, you you get a lot of data and and you want to look for things, but it's it's a lot less um, hard on yourself in that sense. I, I don't have to spend four months doing something and feel like a failure. I can set up a database. I can work on getting things done or, you know, we, we see things move into clinic and and I can feel happy about those things. But And I've been a part of a bigger team, but it's not just me all alone by the bench staring at my bacteria that are giving me, like, the stink eye. Yeah, <laughs> the hard thing to realize,
1: too, is, like, I mean, even... Like, you know, I mean, thinking back on, like, one of my biggest experimental failures that was not, like, you know, not just a couple of months of experimental, experiment, but, like, you know, like, six or almost a year, that's just, like, oh, yeah, that's just totally fruitless. But the thing is, like, <laughs> a lot of times, like, it's never really the end. Like, it's hard to realize this, like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, it's, like, no, there's actually something valuable you could do with that, potentially, mm-hmm. too. Like, right? you just have to, like, take a step back and think about it a little more creatively. And, like, I never pursued anything else with that particular line of experiments but like thinking back on it's like you know what i could have done this and that and that might have been a failure too but like you know it's at least something that i could have done with it and not just like scrapped the whole thing and felt horrible about myself like i could have, Mm -hmm. you know like it's rarely a dead end in science like it's you know what i mean there's always like oh i was wrong but like i can go back and like you know there are multiple paths through the maze, I guess that's the point. And like it's but it's hard to realize that as an individual postdoc sitting there like slaving away at the bench doing your, you know, pipette monkey
3: stuff. Yeah. I do I do think I agree completely. And the the other thing that I do think makes me more happy professionally is that I see opportunities. So if this job were to end, yeah. like say that they they decide like, "Oh yeah, we're going to scrap your job, it doesn't work." I don't feel like, you know, that I mean, I feel scared, of course. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to find a new job. But I don't feel as unsure that I have qualities that could give me another job. Whereas when I was at the bench at the postdoc, I was constantly thinking, how am I supposed to prove myself that I can get another job? Or what kind of job can I really do? And what what skills do I have? Like that everlasting question, how do you get your skills, how you write mm-hmm. your CV with the skills from the postdoc. But if you have like another type of job, I think that's easier. It feels easier for me now to just say, I, I know these things. I, I have an ability this. It seems
2: that this brought you a lot more confidence mm-hmm. in it yourself. Did. Mm-hmm. And that's always a good thing, right? <laughs> yes. To feel more confident, that feel like you can do things and you're good at that. Mm-hmm. Well,
3: I, well I, if you ask me today, I think I'm, I'm pretty decent, but, you know. <laughs> We're <laughs> I'm not sure going to go on, on, like, big words here. Not good, but decent. It's, you know, yeah. so. The, uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: so, I mean, I guess this brings us to, like, one of our latter questions. Um, but, like, I mean, do you have advice for, like, you know, for your postdoc self, for your younger self, that, you know, you would tell yourself now that you've had some perspective like, you've been talking about it a little bit, but, like, you know, is there anything else you would say? Like, it's like, oh, yeah, I would tell myself not to worry so much, or, you know what I mean?
3: Like, um, I like would that. say more, like, in the in the phrase of what you were talking about just, just now with that, when that experiment failed, to kind of be able to ask someone else that not you to go through the experiment with you and just say, like, how... Is there anything I can salvage? You know, some of those pep talks or getting just another person to evaluate things. Because I was not great at asking other people, not for help necessarily, but collaborations or or something. It depends a little bit on which type of lab you're into, of course. But I mean, I did a lot of things myself. I was hard on myself and I, I... I kind of thought I needed to toughen it out and, you know, yep. I, I can mm-hmm. do it myself. And then in the end, it would have been so much better if I would have realized that, that it's it's really more of a teamwork thing or you need to find a few people where you can maybe even exchange experiment data so you can kind of see if someone else sees more stuff in there than, than you do because you're so married to your own idea. Right. right. And <laughs> then, you can't see the yes. forest for the trees, yeah. Exactly. And then, and then I do think... I would possibly not have been as hard on myself on what kind of skills I know that you don't have to be perfect to say that you know something that there's a, you can do a skill inventory and kind of be a little more lenient. If you know something like 50%, you could possibly say that you know that averagely. I mean, Mm -hmm. instead of being just, you, you don't have to have a nature publication to have to say, oh, I know this thing. You can, you know, a JID publication is fine, too. or <laughs> Smaller <laughs> yeah, things. No, I mean, yeah, like,
1: I mean, any... Uh, yeah, I mean, almost any publication. Like, oh, public no, no, good, but but I'm thinking like, now yeah, in skill yeah.
3: sets. I mean, you can... Oh, yeah, for you sure. can, So a lot of people don't necessarily... I didn't think that I knew a lot of things because I knew that there was a lot of people around me that knew it much more. Mm-hmm. But but now I would right. go back and say to myself, just believe in yourself and think that you know that. that that's right. how other I, I mean, people do it.
1: Yeah, I think there's yes, the trap yes. of... As a scientist, like especially like when you get at the postdoc stage, it's like you, you sort of have like the realization that like there's just so much knowledge out there and so much that, like I mean, collectively humans don't know. Like, and as individuals, like you know, like I think we learn the skepticism thing pretty well as scientists for the most part. Of like, yeah, we have to be really careful about saying what we know and what we don't, and be, you know. And there's always,
2: it seems that in academia, there's always that many people that seem to know more, or yeah. at least they pretend they mm-hmm. that, they, that know they know more. more. Yeah, yes. for sure. So then it makes you feel like, oh, I know nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it's kind of like the more you know, the more that you don't, you know what you don't know. Yeah. So it seems that you start uh, study, 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 and then you feel like, oh my God, I don't know anything.
0: So... I was going to say, it sounds like the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, like, um, a little bit about something, and you think you know everything, and then...
3: Like yeah, when you actually know it.
1: something about something you don't think you know it like that right. is the Dunning Kruger effect like it's not the yeah. opposite of like that's just the Dunning Kruger effect.
3: Well, I, I do think especially it, it ties into that you especially when when you're a postdoc that you only socialize or not only but a lot of people mm-hmm. socialize mainly with other postdocs so right. you never really know that that whole thing you know what does a a regular person know or you know so so you you kind of always surround yourself with people who have at least half of your education in this specific field which is a really narrow little pool that you're going around in and then when you meet regular people who work with other things and you can tell them some of the stuff you do they're like wow you know really lots on this and it's like oh i've never thought of it that way
2: (laughs) oh you mean that not
3: everyone knows that some bacteria grow in this condition okay all right i mean it, it sounds really silly now but but when you're just surrounded mm-hmm. by those people mm-hmm. that's what you do right i mean
0: like, what
1: do you mean you know yep. about the operon? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my god Sorry, that okay was well that was really really nice thank you so much for agreeing to visit our recovering academic podcast oh, and to our listeners thank you for listening and we we'll see you next time.
1: Yep. See you next time.
2: Bye bye. This week's Recovering Academic is sponsored by Scientific Dispatches Consulting, an editorial service for scientists. They specialize in helping you tell your research story clearly and concisely. Scientific Dispatches offers consulting, editing, writing and presentation preparation services. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation at scientificdispatches.com
0: Thanks for listening to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Our music is from bensound.com under a Creative Commons license. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps other people find out about us. You can tweet the show at RecoveringAcad. You can also find all of the hosts on Twitter. I'm at lady scientist i'm
2: at doctor underscore BMS,
1: and i'm at ih street
2: we're also on facebook you can find us at facebook.com
0: slash recovering academic podcast you can find all of our episodes and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at recoveringacademic.net and don't forget there is sunshine outside the ivory tower